Sometimes this world makes no sense to me. I'm torn between what others want and what is me. It seems a song is what the world demands, but how can I sing in this strange land? Until I die, I'll sing God's song, living in this Babylon, always looking for the shore of the world that I was made for. The world where the weak are finally strong and the righteous are known for righting wrongs. I want to see this earth start shaking, being impacted by a powerful generation that is finally waking up inside. And on the final day when I die, I want to hold my head up high. I want to look God himself in the eye and tell him that I tried. Good morning, Transit Church. Uh, glad that you all are with us this morning. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Jeff, and I want to say hello to those of you who may be uh, joining us for the first time. We're glad that you're here, and uh, more than just being uh, glad that you're here, we hope that you are encouraged as you worship with us this morning. We uh, have been in a series in the book of Daniel, the Old Testament book of Daniel, for several months, and we are in chapter 10 today. And so I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 10. We're going to start by reading a few of these verses and uh, as is our tradition, I would ask you to read them out loud right there in your homes or wherever you may find yourself. Daniel chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 1 and read all the way to verse 14. Verse 1 through 14 of Daniel chapter 10, read with me. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar, and the word was true. And it was a great conflict, and he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all. For the full three weeks, on the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphas around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, along, uh, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as if I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. Verse 10, and behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and my knees. And as he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I've come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision for, uh, for, is for days yet to come. This is God's word. Let's take a minute and pray. Father, we're grateful for the day. Thank you for 
the gathering uh, of your church, uh, albeit uh, on the internet and, and via technology. We thank you for the technology that allows us, uh, though we are a scattered church this morning and have been for, for several weeks now, that we are together by your spirit. And so, spirit, would you come? Would you uh, uh, cast aside for us just for a few minutes all those things in our homes and uh, even the extraneous things that we could be doing uh, on our technological devices and help us to focus in on, on, on what says the Lord. God, we pray that this passage and its mystery uh, would be helpful to us, that it would point us to Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen and amen. All right, so we're going to dive into to Daniel chapter 10 this morning. We are actually nearing uh, the end of our time in this, in this Old Testament book of Daniel. Chapter 10 today, next week we're going to launch into both chapters 11 and 12. In concert, chapters 10, 11, and 12 are all linked together because they encompass really one final vision that Daniel receives from God and that he records, of course, in, in our Bibles. Chapter 10 is all about preparing Daniel for the vision that he's going to, going to receive. And the overarching theme that we're going to talk about today is, is spiritual warfare. Uh, some of you may not be familiar with that term. Uh, you're, you're like piecing it together, spiritual warfare. Does that mean I fight with my, <laughs> fight with my, uh, with my eyes closed? Actually not. Um, it can sound kind of weird. Really, spiritual warfare is, is any kind of opposition to God and, and his kingdom. I like the definition that uh, author Clinton Arnold, who has written probably one of the, the most biblical, uh, solid uh, books on spiritual warfare that I've ever read. Uh, Three Crucial Questions About Spiritual Warfare is his book. And his definition is spiritual warfare is a way of characterizing our common struggles as Christians. So I think this is a true, true statement. You know, many of us, when we come to faith, we, we have this problem of, of expecting life to be easy. I think even outside of being a Christian, a lot of times we expect life to be, to be easy. But particularly when we come to, come to Jesus, we start following, we trust him for salvation. There's something in us. Maybe it's the, the, the culture uh, that we, that we immerse ourselves in. We follow Jesus and we learn that Jesus is the one that we can trust with like every care that we have. And we just assume that because Jesus takes care of all of our problems, life is supposed to be a picnic. It's like, like, yes, Jesus, take all my problems away. But if you've been a Christian long enough, you know that that's, that's actually not the case. In fact, you realize uh, life can be hard, perhaps even more so because we're Christians following after God and his ways in a culture that's far from that. And so we all share a common struggle. And this is what Daniel 10 alludes to. It alludes to this fact that life is, is hard. And, and Daniel 10 kind of gives us the perspective of why. And he, here's why. There's this great conflict being played out in the spiritual dimensions, in, in the heavenlies, so to speak. And that conflict is one where we, where we experience here on earth what's really going on outside of our sphere. There's a greater conflict going on in a, in a realm that we are kind of unaware of. And the more we are aware of this great spiritual conflict that's not happening right where we live, the more we will be prepared for the challenges that we face right here on earth. And so we got a lot of verses of scripture. Uh, I'm going to break the uh, sort of how we uh, talk about this today into three points. And my first point is, is really about Daniel. And what we see in Daniel is a heart for people 
and a heart for prayer. And so some context here, it's about 535 B.C. We know that because the the text tells us that Daniel receives his vision from the Lord in the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia. And so, again, yet another king that Daniel is is being ruled by uh, in their exile. Daniel is probably about 85 years old. He's he's been in captivity along with the, uh, the, the Jews from Jerusalem for 70 years. And so Daniel receives a vision from God and the vision rocks him so much that he enters into three weeks of mourning and fasting. We don't learn all the details of, of exactly why Daniel is, is mourning and fasting in the text in Daniel. We have to go outside uh, uh, of Daniel to find that out. And then in the Old Testament book of Ezra, we learn that in the first year of this same Cyrus, king of Persia, in his reign, he's moved by God. God comes to Cyrus and he uh, just uh, invades him spiritually to get Cyrus to allow the Jews to return from exile back to their homeland in Jerusalem. Can you imagine the, the euphoria in that? Like these people who've been taken from their home and made to live in, in captivity for 70 years. I mean, they're probably like having a party, right? And so we learn in Ezra chapters 1 and 2 that Cyrus not only uh, uh, gives a proclamation, a decree that the Jews can go back home, he actually outfits, he supports them in, in the journey. We learn in Ezra 1 that he gives them uh, uh, monies in terms of gold and silver. He gives them beasts for transportation and logistics. Uh, more importantly, uh, he, he, he takes all the artifacts that were taken by Nebuchadnezzar, that the cups and the bowls, the gold and the silver and all these other kinds of trinkets that would have been artifacts in the temple, in, the, in, in Israel's temple. And he gives that back to the Jews so that they can in turn take that back to Jerusalem. And so these former exiles, at least the first wave, go back to Jerusalem. And what do they do? They start rebuilding their homes. They start rebuilding the temple. They start with the altar. Then they build the foundation of the temple. And so in a, a year or two in of returning back to Jerusalem, for all intents and purposes, life gets hard. And one of the reasons why life gets hard is because when they went into exile, of course, the the neighboring tribes of people came and occupied uh, all of their territory. And just because Cyrus makes a proclamation to send the Jews back doesn't mean that these people are going to want to leave without being forced to leave. And so immediately the, the returned exiles encounter opposition. And on top of that, just think about the basic necessities of of trying to recreate a home that you left 70 years ago. They're trying to rebuild a city. They're trying to rebuild a temple. And they're having all this opposition, opposition from people who who are living there and they're trying to to move out of the way. But also just the opposition of just trying to, to, to remake their home all over again. Life gets hard. And so here's what happens. They actually give up. They stop. In fact, they stop. Uh, they stop any movement forward of rebuilding their temple and rebuilding their city for more than 15 years. And so what we're learning about Daniel mourning and fasting has to do with this this period. He's, he's provoked by what he hears of the news of the, the first wave of exiles going back to Jerusalem. And he's concerned over the news of what's happening in Palestine. And, and, and here's what I mean by this first point of, of Daniel having a heart for people a heart, and a heart for prayer is that this should challenge us, that, this, that, that, that Daniel, 
would, would take three weeks to dedicate himself to specifically fast and pray for his brothers and sisters in the opposition that they are facing as they're returning home. Here's a side note. Daniel doesn't even go back to Jerusalem, at least with this first wave. We, we have no idea if he, if he even ever goes back to Jerusalem. And we only actually don't even know why. Perhaps Daniel at this point in his life was, was too old to make the trek. Maybe Daniel was too important in government, government affairs to be spared. Maybe Daniel voluntarily chose to stay behind, thinking that he could be more effective for the Jews in their effort to, to go back to Jerusalem if he stayed back in the power base of Babylon. We actually don't know. In any case, I, I think that we should be challenged. I, I'm challenged by this notion, by this idea that Daniel dedicated himself for three whole weeks to seek the Lord. By praying and fasting. He prayed and fasted. He mourned for his brothers and sisters in the Lord who weren't even around him anymore. Daniel had a heart for people. He had a heart for his people, the Jewish people, the people of God. And the way that he maintained his influence over these people was simply to pray for them. You know, one of the effects of the coronavirus pandemic is, is hopefully that we realize people are people, like all over the world, young and old, rich and poor, affluent and not, uh, important and unimportant, westernized world, industrialized, and those who are far from it, this pandemic has spanned the globe and there's not a soul on the face of the earth who has not in some way been touched by it. We have all suffered in the same ways. Why is that? Because people are people. And it's even more so in the church. And why is that? Because we're all one big family. We're all one big family and God has made us one because we all are, are, are uh, we have the same spirit of God in us. And there's many of you who've contributed financially, supporting missionaries around the, the, the world and nonprofits and the way that they uh, do their thing, whatever that thing might be. Some of you have actually gone on missions trips to help people who are far from God get to know Jesus by pro- proclaiming the gospel. You know, while we can't go everywhere and do everything and support everybody, the one thing that we're learning from this text that all of us can do to play a part, particularly in supporting and encouraging those who God has called to himself, what's that one thing? It's pray. We can all pray. We can pray for those whose path is hard. The, the, the Jews had returned from Babylon going back to Jerusalem. Their path had become hard. Some of you, your path is hard. We're reminded in this passage of what tremendous need we have in the church today for intercessors like Daniel. I'm going to say that again. Can I, can I make it more personal this time? We're reminded in this text the tremendous need that we have in, in our church, at Transit Church, for people who are intercessors like Daniel. I mean, if there's ever been a time where we need people who are interceding for the leaders of our church and the pastors of your church and the students who haven't been gone to school for a long time in our church and the young kids in our church and the, and the marriages in our church is right now. Perhaps the Lord is calling you to that transit church 
And, and you know, one caveat, here's a, here's a note within the sermon. Like, like, if you feel like God is calling you to particularly to intercede for all the things going on, not just in our world, not just in our city, not even just in your family, but in our church, we'd love to let, we, we'd love to know. Why? Because I'd love to give you some things to pray about. So Daniel prays because he has a heart for the people. But Daniel goes actually one step further. He actually fasts. This wasn't a total fast. I mean, Daniel's a faster. We learned about that in, in chapter one, where uh, where he abstained from the king's food and God blessed him and, and elevated him and, and promoted him in the kingdom. In this case, he fasted meat and wine. You know, there's a whole lot of reasons why we uh, why we fast and, and how we fast. Here, Daniel just abstains from the luxuries of life that made his life comfortable. Um, why would he do that? He did it so that he could identify himself with the difficulties and trials of those who had already returned back to Jerusalem. He was trying to put himself in in their stead. And he's on their behalf crying out to God for their deliverance. Because they're engaged in a spiritual battle against a powerful opposition. They were coming up against physical things like physical people who were in their land, in their way, physical obstacles in rebuilding their homes and rebuilding the temple and putting everything back into place. And what Daniel is going to realize here, because the angel is going to visit him, is that this isn't just all physical. It's spiritual. It's a spiritual battle. And this spiritual battle is really the focus of the rest of chapter 10. Look down at verse 5. I lifted up my eyes and looked and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphrates around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like the flaming torches, his, alarm, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. This brings me to my second point. And, and what Daniel is experiencing here is the glory and the greatness and the holiness of our God. And so Daniel, he see, he's, he's having a vision and in this vision, he sees a heavenly being, and Daniel is, he's, uh, he's, he's for us describing the appearance. And the appearance, he says, of this heavenly being is like a man. He's clothed in linen. In, in the Bible, uh, linen is a picture of holiness and purity. Think about Jesus when, uh, when he was crucified, lay in a tomb, and he was covered in linen. He says uh, the, the heavenly being, his face had the appearance of lightning. Lightning in scripture is a, a biblical symbol often uh, associated with power and glory. Again, think of Israel at Mount Sinai. They come through the Red Sea. God brings them to Mount Sinai and they're awaiting uh, the, the initiation of the covenant. And the way that God manifests his glory before Israel is he comes as a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. A lot of times we think of, you know, clouds, puffy, white, all right, bigger, more rain, right? That's not what this cloud would have looked like. It would have, it would have been awful. It would have been um, glorious, lightning, thunder, rumbling, trumpets blasting, indicating God's power, his enormous glory and his power. Daniel goes on to say that his eyes were flaming torches, that his legs were uh, like, like bronze, and his mouth, out of his mouth, his voice like, was like multitudes of voices talking. Of course, there is no shortage of ideas of, of those 
who are really guessing, making assumptions about what this heavenly being is. Some comment that it parallels Ezekiel's opening vision of the glory of God. Ezekiel sees this four-headed creature, one having a human face, and um, uh, the, 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 the picture develops into uh, a throne, and under the throne are wheels within a wheel. It's, it's an amazing picture of the glory of God. Others say it's more like the description of the glorified Christ in Revelation 1, and particular in that description is, is the, the flaming eyes that come through like fire. Others would argue that this is, this is an angel, specifically a cherubim, which also in Ezekiel appears in the form of, of a man. Can you guess? We don't know, right? There's so many ideas of what this is. We don't actually know. The scripture isn't, uh, isn't giving us that kind of information. Here's my take. Whatever the exact identity, we know the man in this vision is representing God. Why would I say that? Because angelic beings themselves reflect the image of the glory of God. They serve God. That's what angels do. They serve him as as mediators between God and and him. They are the ones that come and um, serve as messengers of what God wants us to know about himself, about his glory, about what's going to happen. And this is what this angel is doing. They're serving God so that in Scripture, when we see the manifestation of an angel or heavenly being, it really is akin to viewing God himself. I think the thing to note here, not that the not that. The, 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 the appearance of this heavenly being is not important, but I, I am drawn to Daniel's response. Do you, do you notice that this, this vision of this heavenly being leaves Daniel like trembling and, and helpless? Uh, the, the heavenly being speaks and Daniel's strength is absolutely leaves him. He falls to the ground almost in a trance. If you're Pentecostal, this is what they call slaying the spirit. Like, right? Like, like the, the man of God touches me and I'm like, I'm out. For minutes. Verse 10, he touches Daniel and he makes him tremble such that he ends up on his hands and his knees. And what's being described here, church, is is the vision of the manifest presence of God. This is God's presence, like like, that, that God in his presence. If you come into any form of it, even this mediated form where an angel carrying the presence of God, it's going to be overwhelming. One uh, one commentator says the vision pulsates with brightness and reverberates with sound, crushing Daniel to the ground and seeing his companions scurrying, cover, uh, scurrying for cover. The prophet couldn't stand on his feet because, before such an awesome vision of the glory of God, but must inevitably fall on his face before him. I, I, let me tell you, if, if any of us would come into God's presence in any form close to this, there's no doubt in my mind we would assume the same posture. This is who God is. This is what it's truly like to be in God's presence. This is what Romans, this is what Paul says in Romans 14. This is what Paul says in Philippians 2. Every knee shall bow, every tongue is going to confess, what? That Jesus is Lord. Why would we do that? Because Jesus is the glory of God. Jesus is God. Here's the the sad thing. Even as I give this, I'm just articulating what Daniel is seeing. But even as I say that, the sad truth for many of us is that God is we don't know God like that, that the God that we say we know and serve 
isn't this God that's glorious and great and that we're falling and bowing ourselves down to. The culture that we live in, even our church culture, treats God, knows God like he's Santa Claus. And, and this Santa Claus God is pooping out rain, uh, gumdrops and lollipops if we're good. And even if we're bad, he's not even giving us coal. He's just patting us on the head and say, oh, baby, do better. Some of us have a God that's a genie. We're rubbing him on the belly. We're making a wish and poof, outcomes, at least we think, outcomes whatever we want. And, and if anything that you get from the sermon, get this. The reality here is that God is great and he's glorious and he's holy. And this is an important perspective to have, especially in times of trial and suffering and persecution and, and, and exile. Dating all the way back to Genesis 3, Satan wants us to believe that, that God is a pansy, that, that, that he's, he's Mr. Nice Guy, and that our obedience and our holiness towards him doesn't matter. Life is hard, so why would you make life even more harder? Why don't you just do what's easy? Go with the flow. Go with, do what the culture does. Just be like everybody else. And of course, this is Israel's story, isn't it? They, they pursue the idols of the cultures around them, even knowing the, 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 the stipulation that God said, you'll be my people, I'll be your God, but I want you to obey me. That's a sign of your love for me. And even as they pursued other cultures around them, where did it end them up? It ended up in exile. Why did they end up in exile? Because God is great and God is glorious and God is holy. Hear this transit church. If we serve a God that's so blazingly glorious and holy, we'd be fools to think he's not passionately committed to creating that same holiness in his people, me and you. Even if he has to exile us. So in our text, God's purpose in revealing himself to Daniel is this glorious way and its glorious way wasn't to make Daniel afraid or, or to crush him. He's not trying to make D Daniel afraid of who he is. It was to encourage him. God wanted Daniel to see his own weakness before him so that he wouldn't trust so much in his own knowledge or his own ability. I'm going to pray real hard. I'm going to put sackcloth and ashes on my body. I'm going to mourn and fast for three weeks and God is going to break through. That's not what God intended for Daniel. What did he want? He wanted Daniel to look up and, and depend on God for his own for his strength. And he wants that for us, too. And so the heavenly being reaches out his hand. Verse 11, he says to Daniel, man greatly loved. Beautiful, beautiful words meant to, meant to encourage Daniel. This angelic being encourages Daniel with the affirmation that he's esteemed by God, loved even. Then the angel proceeds to inform Daniel that his prayers have, have triggered a, a response that, that he'd been sent to Daniel in response to his prayers to give him understanding. Now, we won't get into all of uh, exactly what uh, what that understanding is until next week. But for uh, intents and purposes, uh, the, the, the angel is telling Daniel, I'm being sent by God in response to you mourning and fasting over the present situation in Jerusalem. And that was meant to encourage the man of God. Here's my last point. The greater battle behind our struggles, the greater battle behind our struggles. This is where we get into the ideas 
of spiritual warfare. And so in our text from verse 10 all the way through the end of chapter 10 into chapter 1, chapter 11, verse 1, we're seeing a picture of, of spiritual warfare, opposition, impending opposition against the kingdom of God. And the battle is who, who's going to win? Is it the kingdom of darkness or God's kingdom, the kingdom of light? And so what God is doing with Daniel through this mediator, the angel, is he's stretching the boundaries of Daniel's thought and prayer to help him see that there's something bigger going on, even in the Jews returning from exile. That there's, there's something bigger and greater behind the struggle that they're experiencing physically on the ground of this nation going back to the land that God had promised them and sent them into exile for 70 years. And God wants us to be aware as well of the greater battle behind our struggles in this life, too. Look at verse 12. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I've come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. And so we're told in these verses that this angelic visitor, this heavenly being, had, had left the minute Daniel began to pray. God had dispatched him from heaven the very minute Daniel began to intercede for his people. And, and here it is. Three weeks later, that's what the reference to 21 days kind of means. And the question, of course, in our minds is, well, gosh, is, is heaven three weeks away from earth? No. All right. So it's, it's not. It's not like, we, like, like we're in the movie Martian and they're like making a loop around the moon to, to get where they, where they need to go. So what's going on? It's spiritual warfare. It's the conflict between good and evil. There's a conflict behind Israel's return from captivity. The physical struggle and troubles in Jerusalem aren't just uh, are just some smaller manifestation of the greater spiritual battle in which Daniel's prayers are playing a part. And so in our text, the prince of uh, the Persian kingdom is not an actual prince. This, This is an angelic figure. It's representing evil. It's a demon, a glorified demon that that seemingly has a lot of power, so much so that he's able to detain this uh, this angelic being. And actually uh, him and Michael together are having to combat it. And so this this figure, this demonic figure is somehow associated with a Persian empire who's resisting God's purposes. He's an agent of Satan, which means, as one commentator says, Satan's evil and his enmity against God and his people is sometimes manifested through the rulers and the powers of this age. That, that kind of actually kind of scary, right? What this means is like some of some of you are are uh, are aware of the spiritual warfare talk and of of this being a reality, not just of our physical world, but of the of the world that we don't see. And you've heard of the idea of of territorial spirits. And I don't have enough time to get into that topic. But the question is, 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 is Daniel here and the, the angels, are they are they telling us there's such a thing as spirits of demons that uh, that are given territories to inflict what uh, and influence what goes on with rulers and nations and peoples within those territories? I don't know, but I do know someone who, who, who has a good idea. 
Here's what Sam Storms, author and pastor and theologian, says. Sam Storms says, I see nothing in the Bible that that, that precludes the possibility of territorial spirits. And I see numerous texts that certainly imply their reality. Then Sam Storms adds, the question remains, what should be our response to them? And so all I can say is, is here's what I think this means, that even now, some of the the present experiences that you and I uh, experience here on the earth of opposition in our lives, particularly in the church, are the result not of our own doing, but they're the result of of parallel conflicts being worked out in the heavens. There's a war in the heavenlies. And because we're on God's side, we're part of the we, we are the enemy of the enemy. And he's after us. And so getting back to our text, verse 15 and 19, we aren't going to read those. What's going on is the, the, this heavenly being. He's attending to Daniel. Remember, Daniel, this, this, you know, Pentecostal slain his spirit. He's on the ground. He's knocked out. He can't even speak. And so the angel has to uh, has to comfort him. He touches Daniel, touches his lips, give him the ability to speak. And then he lifts him up so that he can communicate with him. And here's what he says. Skip down to verse 20. Then the, the angelic being says, do you know why I'm, I've come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. Chapter 11, verse 1. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. All right, there's a lot that I can explain. Uh, there's a lot that we can learn from here, but I want to sort of conclude our time today just by giving you some implications. So four things that I think we can take away uh, from chapter 10, our text, and then we will sort of come back to this and uh, conclude it next week. So the first thing is, is simply this. The events of this world can't be interpreted by history alone. The events of this world, the world that we live in, cannot be interpreted by history Alone. A lot of times we think that history is physical. It's what I see. It's what I can feel. It's what I experience in the here and now. It's chronological. Here's what this text is telling us. History is spiritual. A lot of times we think of the, the epicenters of our world, the New Yorks, the Washington, D.C.s, the London, the Berlin and Tokyo and Beijing and Moscow as being just like the center of everything that goes on. Whatever goes on in those entities is what goes on in the rest of the world. And this text is telling us not only is history spiritual, London and D.C. and uh, Berlin and New York and Tokyo and Beijing and Moscow are not the center of the ultimate power struggle of of history. It's happening outside of those locations. Thus, theologian and former prime minister Abraham Piper a century ago said these uh, fitting words. He says, if once the curtain were pulled back and the spiritual world behind it came into view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense, so convulsive, so sweeping, everything within its range that the fiercest battle ever fought on earth would seem by comparison a mere game. Here's what he's telling us. He's like, there's a war in the heavenlies, and that's the real war that's going on. And so not down here at Transit Church, up there. That, that, that's, that's where the real conflict is being waged. And our earthly struggles grow in the backlash of that. What does that say? Our, 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 our spiritual battle, our battle is a spiritual battle. Here's the second thing. Satanic forces opposed to the church continue to use the powers and institutions of the world in their struggle against God's people. That's a lot of words, right? Here's what, it, here's what I'm saying. 
In, in verse 20, the, this angelic being tells Daniel he's got to leave. He's got to leave him and go return to help Archangel Michael in the fight against the prince of Persia. And then he says these words. These are important words. He says, the prince of Greece is coming next. The angel is forecasting. He's, he's foretelling human history of, of nation after nation, of ruler after ruler, through which Satan is going to attempt to wield his power and influence and, and thwart God's plan o- o- over his people. And, and we've seen this in Daniel the whole time through. Remember in chapter 2? Remember in chapter 7? Remember last week when Nick preached in chapter 9? There's nation after nation. That's ruler after ruler, and uh, the, the perspective is that these nations get more and more evil. They get worse and worse. And their opposition is ultimately against the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of darkness against the kingdom of God. And the implication, of course, is that the spiritual struggle that we face on earth won't soon be over because the nations of which we are citizens of across the globe are a part of this same battle. And so we need to realize, you know, more close to more close to where we live, we need to realize that the root cause of some of our own difficulties, not the difficulties of government and, and presidents and prime ministers and all that kind of stuff, but just like where you and me live, like in our homes, when we go to work, the difficulties, that, the difficulties and some of the root causes of some of the difficulties and troubles that we have in our lives, it's not just you, your husband, or your wife being unreasonable. It's not just a work situation that seems impossible. It's not just your kid that's rebellious that's taking up all of your time. It's not even your own sinful habits that frustrate you. Then what is it? Rather, it's the underlying spiritual battle that we're all engaged in. We're all engaged in this, this battle against powerful forces in the heavenly realms. Here's how Paul puts it, Ephesians 6, verse 12. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Here's the third thing that we can learn from our text. We have to have the right perspective of the devil's power. This is an important point. You know, I think Satan seems to have Two, uh, two strategies. This comes out of Clinton Arnold's book again. And, and the first strategy of Satan is he makes us think that there's a demon behind every bush. I mean, you know people like that, right? Like every, everything they see, every negative thing that happens is like that the devil is doing that or the devil is making me do it. A lot of times what Satan is doing, he's trying to persuade people that he's all powerful and that to resist him is pointless. This is what he kind of sort of does with Eve. He comes to her and he makes her question God. And he, of course, is elevating himself as the all-knowing, all-powerful one that like, like his advice is better than God himself. Some of you know church folk who, who blame every negative thing that happens on the work of, work of demons. So you have somebody that's an alcoholic in your family. And what's that person? That person is possessed by alcoholism, like a demon of alcoholism. Say so you know someone is bitter. What's that person? That person is, is like possessed by a spirit of bitterness. And what do we want to do with people who are possessed? We want, to, we want to lay our hands on them. We want to slap some oil on them. We want to speak in tongues. And we want to pray against and cast that demon out. That's what we want to do, right? And I'm not saying that's wrong. I, I, I come from that background. But here's, here's what's true. Satan and his minions are behind much of the evil in our world. And we should pray for God to frustrate Satan's efforts. 
But here's what happens when we say that there's a demon behind every bush. We're given we're given evil and Satan too much credit. Why is that? Jesus says it best. Greater is he that's in me than he who is in the world. He's talking about you, you and me. Greater is he that's in us. And so Satan tries to make us think that there's a demon behind every bush. Uh, his, his other strategy is, is exactly the opposite. He makes us think that he's not there at all. Satan shrinks back into the background, out of sight. And I would tell you this is his dominant strategy that he employs in our culture to make people think that he doesn't exist at all. This is the strategy he employs in the church, particularly us reformed people who would give more credit to our own sin than we do to the, the, the enemy to influence us. It's just too convenient for people to, to, to disbelieve in the existence of Satan. And of course, that means that Satan can carry out his work unsuspected and completely undetected. Here's the last point, and then I'll finish with this. We all have to do our part. I think we see this in Daniel. We all have to do our part. You know, we can contend with, uh, the, the we, we can't contend rather with the powerful uh, angels depicted in this text. Now, there's some of you who have been taught that you have authority over uh, like vast demons and principalities. And I would tell you, you have the authority, uh, you have derivative authority from Jesus to influence in a way, but there is no way that you can believe you have authority. Look, look it's, there's an heavenly being and the archangel Michael who are going against the prince of Persia and they are struggling in the battle with him. And so here's, here's, where, here's where the text is leading us. Uh, this is out of our league. It, it really is. But it doesn't mean that we're helpless against our evil enemy, because there is something that we can do. And Daniel uh, shows us the example of that. He mimics it, mimics, it, mimics, mimics it for us. What does Daniel do? He prays. That's what triggered this whole thing. The returned exiles uh, are going back to Jerusalem. They encounter problems with the neighbors. They encounter problems with just the, the logistics of putting the foundation of the temple and the altar back together. And, and, and they want to give up. But Daniel starts to pray. And so for us, in the face of overwhelming situations, of unbearable trials, frustrating difficulties, here's what Daniel is modeling for us, that we who are weak and trembling human beings can make war ourselves in the heavenlies. How do we do that? We pray. We pray. We get on our knees and pray. We bow our heads and pray. We fold our hands and pray. You pray in any posture that you feel like you can pray. You pray. Perhaps it might be helpful if you mourn and fast and pray. We pray. Let me conclude with this. You know, our ultimate victory doesn't rest on our faithfulness to pray. You know, it would be wrong for me to just stand here and say, all right, if you pray, people, you're going to solve all the problems of the world. That puts too much pressure on us and our, you know, that, that's, that's striving to do God's work uh, in our own strength. And that's not what I am commending to you. But it also doesn't rest on the power of angels who are fighting for us. Who, when, then, then where does the power rest to, to give us victory over all of these foes, all of these enemies of God? It rests on Jesus, doesn't it? Isn't that what the Bible is telling us? Who himself has won the victory for us all. And that's what happens on the cross. What does Jesus do? He hangs his, to his death. 
And, and it's, it's as if it were Jesus is wearing all the spiritual armor that God has given him. And in this decisive battle for our for our souls on the cross, he dies, but he defeats Satan fair and square. And how does he defeat Satan? God raises him up. And it's not as if Jesus is standing uh, is, 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 is in a battle right now. Where is Jesus right now? He's resting. He's seated. He's ruling. He's reigning. And the end of my Bible tells me a couple things. It tells me that Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to plop himself on a white horse. He's going uh, to look glorious himself. He's going to have a sword that talks about the, 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 the powerful, piercing nature of his word. And he's going to come like tatted up. He's going to come and he's and, and and whether they want to or not, anyone that's in opposition to him is going to bow to Jesus. And that's the end. And we'll be with him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful. Lord, I, I would that we would have Daniel's posture, that we would see people who are experiencing the pain of life and that you would move us. To, uh, to mourn and to fast and to, and to pray for those, that we would see you uh, deliver them and raise them up and, and do what we can't do even in our own strength. Uh, Lord, you know, much of this, the spiritual warfare stuff is a mystery for us. And uh, honestly, we don't actually know how it works out. We don't know what, uh, what the angels are doing and, and how you use them, not just as messengers, but to do your bidding against the, uh, the, the evil forces of the world. But Lord, we pray that we would do our part that we would not just pray, but God, that you would use us to, uh, in, you know, in, in faith to, to glorify you by, by our worship and with our words, Lord God, and that we would see you victorious in the end. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.